Antarctica is officially the coldest place on Earth. Satellite data has recorded temperatures as low as minus 92 degrees centigrade at the East Antarctic Plateau. Average temperatures vary from minus 10 degrees on the coast to minus 60 degrees inland, and winds have been recorded as reaching over 320 kilometers per hour. Making it one of the most inhospitable places on Earth. And yet the continent is home to around 4,400 researchers in the summer, and just over 1,000 during the winter. You do kind of feel that as a person when you go there, that, well, this is a fascinating place to visit, but you're kind of quite aware that people don't really belong there. And I guess that that is the sort of the fundamental importance of buildings there, because it's not a place where people can really survive without, you know, the technology and the infrastructure that humans are able to create. At New Zealand's Scott base on the volcanic Ross Island, most of these critical buildings haven't been upgraded since the 80s. I've been, especially through winter, where you can hear the building move. It sounds like a gun going off. It's, it's cracking, you know, the timber piles or the, the insulated panel structure moves with um, either the, just the humidity or the temperature. And the winter lasts for about eight to nine months. There's only going to be around 15, maybe 20 people on the base for all that period. And they're gonna suffer from extremes of weather. They're gonna suffer from three to four months of total darkness and a real sense of isolation. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Jane Sophia. In this episode, we've partnered with WSP to learn about the redevelopment of Scott Base in Antarctica and the challenges that come from building in one of the most isolated and extreme environments on Earth. Antarctica was one of the last places on Earth to be discovered. From as early as the 5th century, a landmass is shown at the bottom of some maps. The area is named Terra Australis Incognita. Terris Australis Incognita, or Unknown Southern Land, was only theoretical at this time, and based on the belief that if there was a landmass at the North Pole, that must be balanced out by one on the South Pole. It wasn't until 1773 that James Cook and his crew crossed into the Antarctic Circle, but still there was no sighting of the Unknown Southern Land. It took 50 more years before a Russian expedition became the first to see Antarctica, and just one year later, American Captain John Davis became the first to step foot onto the ice of Antarctica. What ensued was a race from explorers to conquer the conditions and be the first to reach the South Pole. One of those explorers was Robert Falcon Scott, whose first Antarctic expeditions in 1901 had broken the record for farthest south anyone had been. And in 1910, Scott set out again to try and reach the South Pole. But before he left from New Zealand to head to Antarctica, he received word that the Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen was setting off for the South Pole too. Scott and his team's march to the South Pole began on the 1st of November 1911 and they walked for over two months through freezing conditions. More and more men turned back until just five of them travelled for two more weeks and made it to the South Pole. 
And what they found there was a letter from Amundsen and dated one month prior. Scott and his team had been beaten. Scott's reaction has been immortalised in his diary. He wrote, The worst has happened. All the daydreams must go. Great God, this is an awful place. On the walk back to meet their crew, conditions turned even worse. The temperature unexpectedly dropped to minus 40 degrees Celsius. They were trapped, and they knew they weren't going to make it. Scott and his crew wrote farewell letters to their families, and Scott even wrote one to the public in which he said, Had we lived, I should have had a tale to tell of the hardihood, endurance and courage of my companions, which would have stirred the heart of every Englishman. Scott Base was first set up in 1957 to support the Commonwealth Transantarctic Expedition, led by Sir Edmund Hillary. It's named in honour of Robert Scott, and located where he and his team began their expedition. So Scott Base is in a really interesting location because it's on Ross Island, which is where the great explorers, Scott, Shackleton, Amundsen, all set off from that part of Antarctica in their attempts to get to the South Pole. So it's, uh, there's a lot of history round and about. Um, there is actually even a historic hut on the site of Scott Base that was first put there in 1957 by Sir Edmund Hillary. This is Hugh Broughton, the lead architect on the redevelopment project and a world leader in designing buildings for extreme environments. The base has continued to be developed further over the years and now consists of 12 buildings on the side of a hill connected by walkways. The existing buildings are kind of interesting because they've evolved over time, they've been extended, and they've been kind of joined together by a series of walkways so you don't have to go outside from one to the other. Will Parker is a technical director at WSP, based in New Zealand. So buildings are incredibly important because they're kind of that sort of fundamental requirement to preserve life, keep people warm. You know that if, if your systems go down, your buildings get cold, people aren't going to be able to survive for that long. So the current base was largely, it was built over a number of years through the 80s. It's a collection of 12 buildings. They're, they're, they're built to, they're built based on function and to a degree ease of construction. So they follow the contours of the land. Um, and they're built separately and, and connected by linkways. So those linkways have stairwells. So these, I guess, these compromises in construction that made it easier also have challenges in operating. So when we need to, say, move food or science equipment around, you have to walk quite long distances up stairs. And it can be through different eras in, in building types. So things like the claddings are, are different and some buildings are better insulated than others. And so it's a bit of a, a mix match of, um, of, of, of different construction types. Simon Shelton is Antarctica New Zealand's senior project manager for the Scott Base redevelopment. And he's seen for himself that Scott Base is in need of repair. And so we're starting to see some of those issues now where insulation's failing, paints flaking, um, snow will accumulate on the roof and then start to 
as it warms up through the summer period will leak through and then start to compromise the weather tightness and, and um, warmth and, and ability for the building to maintain the thermal mass. Simon is a veteran of Antarctica, having taken over 20 trips to Scott Base. So to go there, I mean, it's it's always really special, despite going, you know, several times, sometimes one season. Simon has also done a couple of trips to Scott Base in the winter. Through winter, it's a smaller crowd. You're there for a um, much longer duration. The last flight in summer is typically around the end of February, and then the next flight that will come in is about the 20th of August. So my first winter, we yeah, literally waved goodbye to that group on the uh, at the end of February and we didn't see anyone until August which was a really um, foreign feeling you just you, you don't get that anywhere else in the world I mean it really did make you feel quite isolated but also brought the team together we were, we were very close with the buildings that Scott base in need of repair the New Zealand government who owned the base put forward 176 million pounds for its redevelopment but before you can get to the difficulties of building in Antarctica, WSP and Antarctica New Zealand had to deal with the logistics issues of just getting materials to Scott Base. So there is one shipping time period per year. So every year in sort of January, February, we work really closely with the American base who are right next door to us. We have a joint logistics pool, so we share resources on all sorts of things. So we have one bunch of ships, basically an icebreaker comes in at the start of January, followed by two or three supply ships. And that's it for the year in terms of shipping. So anything big or basically anything where you're organised enough, you want to get on that ship because it's a lot cheaper. Carissa Hyde is the construction manager for Antarctica New Zealand. And along with the limited shipping period, Antarctica also spends four months of the year in 24-hour darkness, with a nine-month winter where temperatures drop below minus 50 degrees Celsius. To limit the amount of work that will need to be done in Antarctica, the team decided to pursue a prefabricated, completely modular design that could be entirely built in New Zealand before being taken to Ross Island. Yeah, so I think um, we're, we're taking it to the extreme for this build. We are building whole modules and shipping them down on a, on a really unique vessel called a, a modular carrier class vessel that's ice strengthened. And these modules are uh, really large. So they're over a thousand ton each module and there's eight of them. And each, each module is around about 24 meters by 24 meters by uh, 18 to 20 meters high. They have four structural bays at um, six metre grids and they're, they're far more rigid than, um, than a, a typical building, even more so than a building like a hospital that has to have a um, high degree of resilience for natural hazards such as earthquakes. So they're really strong buildings. They, they're lifted up um, using these things called self-propelled modular transporters and they're wheeled onto this large vessel that has a, a deck that's around about the size of a football field, and that's that heads down from New Zealand to the Ross Sea. Once at the island, the modules will be rolled off the ship and put into place before being connected. 
To further reduce the time spent on construction in Antarctica, all the modules will be fit with working utilities before leaving New Zealand. So we, we will fit these modules out as uh, much as possible. So they will have all of the services in them. Um, we'll run them up with things like water pr um, production. We'll test all of the um, power and data and communication networks. So they'll be, um, essentially you can operate the buildings in New Zealand before we send them down. So yeah, it's quite an extreme case of, of modular construction. Another advantage of taking this modular approach is that it massively reduces the size of the construction team that needs to be based in Antarctica. It has the ability that you can build in New Zealand year-round. You have a lot less health and safety risks as well working in New Zealand uh, rather than in Antarctica and it, it also helps with the whole personnel. The more people you send down, the more supporting people you need to send down and it, it balloons into a a very large thing very quickly. When we take the modules off and position them in Antarctica, there'll be around about 80 to 100 people, construction workers, and the, the vessel may house some that are associated with the, with the, with the um, vessel operations. There'll obviously be people also involved with things like ice breaking. But it's a, it's a reasonably small team compared to many commercial or industrial sites. And it, we're planning on around about two months to carry out the module offload and the connection of the buildings. And then we'll, the buildings will go through a winter, um, an Antarctic winter, where we'll um, essentially stress test the buildings, but also the services to make sure that they can stand up to a, to an Antarctic winter and you know temperatures down to um, minus 57 is our 57.5 is our record temperature at Scott Bay so ambient Celsius so it does get really cold we just want to make sure that the building is is up to it um, before we start putting people in there so we'll actually have two stations running in parallel for for one winter to ensure that it's resilient safe and ready to use. The design of the base had to take into account the prefabricated modular construction process, but also the extreme environmental factors. And even though Hugh has been involved in designing several Antarctic projects, Scott Base and its location on Ross Island present some unique challenges. Scott Base has actually got quite a lot of design parameters. It's next to the sea, there are restrictive existing science installations, there's a road that leads from airfields to the US base at McMurdo. It's a sloping site. It's got very strong winds blowing from the south, but prevailing winds blowing from the north. And then in addition to that, they had a particular program because Antarctica New Zealand support expeditions that are generally run away from the base uh, by scientists from universities, international collaborations, and so on. So it's, it's very much a kind of staging post for science conducted in the field. So that also made it very different from some of the other projects which we had worked on. So yeah, lots of parameters, historical, topographical, geographical and environmental, as well as programmatic. With these constraints in mind and after various visits to Scott Base, Hugh came up with the design. So Scott Base is designed uh, on a sloping site and it's three parallel, essentially tubular buildings 
that are elevated off the ground, that step down the hillside and are connected by link bridges so that the lowest level of the top building connects to the highest level of the middle building and then the lowest level of the middle building connects to the highest level of the bottom building. And the, these tubular structures have got aerodynamic shapes to them to help channel the wind underneath and keep the snow drift away from the immediate vicinity of the buildings. The materials were also carefully considered, as the structure had to be built in the New Zealand summer, but survive in the Antarctic winters. The key consideration here is around the steel structure, which will be exposed in New Zealand and places exposed in Antarctica before it's fully enclosed. So we've got special grades of steel uh, to cope with the low temperature so it doesn't become brittle and shatter. In terms of the cladding, the key thing is achieving total air tightness or as close to total air tightness that we can and high levels of insulation. And we're using a fairly traditional metal composite cladding system but thicker than it would normally be used, for example, in a more temperate environment. And then we've developed a joint jointing system between the panels, which is truly belt and braces, kind of three or four layers of weatherproofing to make sure that we keep out not only the cold, but the tiny, tiny particles of ice that's called spin drift, which get blown around the site. All of these elements have already gone through extensive testing to ensure the buildings will be able to withstand the wind and snow. And we're doing lots of testing on our cladding to ensure its weather tightness before finally committing to the construction of the main buildings themselves. The base has also incorporated many design elements that focus on health and well-being of the people living on Scott Base. So it's quite a balance between supporting the community, creating really nice places for people to get together, places where they can have fun, like the bar, places where they can be quiet, like a library, places where they can exercise, like a gym, but also places where they can be on their own. So everybody who winters or stays for a long duration during the summer gets their own room and you only share if you're there for really a very short period. We've been working with a colour psychologist who's helped us to develop a special palette of colours, not only to help combat the winter blues, but also to reflect the spirit of New Zealand to make people feel more at home. We've carefully chosen uh, materials as well, such as Southland Beach, which is a timber which comes from New Zealand. Again, to make, help make people feel a bit more home, we've selected furniture which comes from New Zealand. There'll be artwork created by people from New Zealand. The design team also worked with lighting experts to create a daylight simulation during the months of continuous darkness. There's another unique factor about the location of Scott Base that impacts the construction. Ross Island is volcanic. We are building on land because we're on Ross Island, which is a, a volcanic island in the middle of the Ross Sea. So that means we've got uh, volcanic rock and we've also got scoria. So we've got, you know, what comes out of a volcano and we've got a slope. So those things all give us quite, in some ways, good foundations, but also some challenging conditions to deal with. There are definitely benefits to being on the ground. So. Most of Antarctica is not soil. Like soil in Antarctica is very highly prized. 
So we really don't want to extend our uh, impact into the surrounding area. So we, we're trying to keep our footprint as constrained as possible. One way that the Scott Base redevelopment is working with the natural environment is how they're constructing the pile foundations. So we've done some drilling. We've also done some test piling. So we've gone down and, and drilled the hole, put a pile in, and then we basically do two things. So we put the pile on a little grout plug. So we pour that in situ, and that gives us really high foundation loads. And then we basically can, we, we, we grout the pile in. That effectively just means we, we fill the hole up with water, and then it freezes. And that's, that's locking it into the ground, so it gives us all the stability we need for the building. By using ice for the piles, there's no need to bring and mix any concrete in Antarctica. So that gives us good resilience against climate change in a, in a warming environment. Uh, it means we're well below the active layer, but it also means that we can remove the piles and um, leave essentially a, a site that has very little residual you know, demolition waste or, or materials left over from, from the construction and use um, in our operation down there once we're finished. Um, so we're also considering the deconstruction as we're planning for the construction. We're about 14 metres above sea level, so that considers the tsunami run-up risk and sea level rise, so we've taken a really conservative approach to that, and we've worked to a 50-year design life. So the key is flexibility of design. So with uh, WSP, we've developed a design based around a very regular six metre structural grid. So all the buildings, the length of all the buildings is a multiple of six metres. And we've minimised internal vertical structure so that the interiors could have their fit out changed through the duration to respond to different emphases in science, potentially even different populations within the buildings. So just challenging that all the time and looking at designing partition systems, flooring systems, ceiling systems, which can easily be reconfigured, has been a key part of the design process. To build to a 50-year lifespan is not just about flexibility, but also responding to the changing environment. Antarctica is particularly prone to the impacts of climate change. Studies suggest that the South Pole is warming three times faster than the rest of the world. So. There's a lot of expertise in the science and the science program that's run by um, Antarctica New Zealand. So those, those experts have had input to the climate change studies that have informed the, the design. And it's really quite interesting in terms of what will go on with um, what the effects of climate change on it in, in Antarctica are. And one of the things is obviously sea level, sea level rise, um, and there are, you know, there there is a potential for the sea level to drop because the effect of the poles due to sea level, level rise is different to the effects in other parts of the world. To deal with the threat, the base is being positioned high enough uphill to be safe from the worst estimates of sea level rise. But there's also secondary effects of some of these things as well because not every year, but most years, the ice breaks out around the coast of Ross Island. And then you get wave action on the shore, quite close to the base. But obviously in the future, we expect that probably to happen more. And as more ice breaks out, 
you have a longer fetch and therefore more wave action. So we've considered that in the design of the base, making sure it's far enough up the slope, but also in some of the facilities that need to be close to the shore. For instance, the water intake structure, because the water's the drinking water is produced by a reverse osmosis plant. So it needs to have an intake from the sea and also wastewater treated to a really high standard, but does get discharged back to the sea. So so those things have to be accessible to the sea. So thinking about the vulnerability of those structures is important. The Scott Base Redevelopment Plan also involves building an expanded wind farm that will allow the base to run almost entirely off of renewable energy. We operate on a shared grid with the US station, McMurdo Station, which is about four kilometres away. So the new replacement wind farm is around about four times the size of the existing um, wind farm. It'll operate off um, three turbines and it will also have what's called a battery energy storage system or, or a large battery bank that will give us up to 10 hours of runtime when there is no wind. And so those things combined will enable the new station to run on 97.3% renewable energy. All of these things have been considered, um, especially when our our primary stakeholder group are scientists that are looking at the impacts of climate change in Antarctica now. So, yeah, we would be naive to dismiss that. Antarctica remains a cold, isolated, unwelcoming environment for people. But our advancements in engineering, design and construction have allowed for more comfortable living for scientists doing crucial work. The Scott Base redevelopment is showing that using creative ways of working with the environment is an effective approach to building in hostile conditions. Hopefully it inspires other Antarctic research stations to uh, move away from their reliance on fossil fuels and also to look at things like thermal efficiency within their buildings so they don't need to expend so much uh, money or fuel on heating and looking at things like air tightness or um, investing in thermal insulation or, or thermal mass um, or just you know good design of where you place windows so you can take advantage of solar gain um, so you don't have to use so much energy in your building. And the design and construction methods taken on this project will offer insight for other extreme condition projects. And there's no surprise really that Antarctica is the number one analogue used by the European Space Agency and NASA when particularly considering human factor design for future interplanetary exploration. And I think there are things to be learned about resource management. Obviously in Antarctica, producing water is very energy hungry. So ways in which you can reduce the amount of water usage, whether that's uh, high pressure water mist fire suppression systems or low water use fittings in bathrooms or vacuum drainage systems. I think also that discussion we had around uh, human factor design, um, helping people to cope with the long periods of darkness and isolation. All those feed into design concepts which could be applied in all sorts of different extreme locations. So I think uh, Antarctica does provide not only a brilliant testbed for out of earth exploration, but also for the kinds of buildings you might want to find in mountainous areas or in other deserts. A hundred years ago, being in Antarctica was a battle for survival. 
Now, we're creating buildings that not only protect people from the extreme conditions, but also makes being in the most remote, hostile environment on Earth enjoyable. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and produced by Johnny Dowling, hosted by me, Alex Conacher, co-hosted by Jane Sophia, editing by Bernadette Ballantyne, sound engineering by Ross McPherson, series supervision by John Young, and our own Terra Incognita is Rory Harris. Thank you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn.